Hello and welcome to another episode of Use of Force. I'm Jesse Hyatt. And I'm Mike Varley. And today we are in Staten Island and we will be discussing an incident from August of 2015 that involved a man named Garland Tyree. And Mike is going to read to us the NYPD use of force statement. Right. The following took place in Mariner's Harbor, Staten Island. At approximately 11.50 hours on Saturday, August 14, 2015, members of the Regional Fugitive Task Force, consisting of four NYPD detectives and four United States Marshals, were seeking to execute a federal probation and weapons possession warrant on a subject at 15 Destiny Court in the confines of the 121st Precinct. Upon arrival, entry into the location was made by the Regional Fugitive Task Force. The team was overcome by smoke that was emanating from a container on the floor inside the apartment. Detectives called out to an individual observed inside the exit location but received no response, leading them to tactically withdraw from the inside of the location due to the smoke condition. The team placed a call for additional units and FDNY to respond. FDNY responded to the scene and was informed by members of the Regional Fugitive Task Force that a wanted fugitive was believed to be inside the location. A lieutenant from the FDNY entered the location in an attempt to assist the individual inside. Gunshots were fired a short time later from within the location, striking the FDNY lieutenant, causing a gunshot wound to his leg. The lieutenant was removed to the hospital and additional officers were called to the scene to assist. The emergency service unit secured the perimeter of the location and the hostage negotiation unit established contact with the perpetrator. Social media revealed that the perpetrator had made statements including, Today I die. The hostage negotiation unit engaged in conversation with the perpetrator for over six hours, resulting in the perpetrator stating he was going to exit the location. Shortly thereafter, emergency service members were fired upon by the perpetrator who was armed with a fully automatic AK-47. The perpetrator had begun to fire through the windows of the location and then opened the rear door in an attempt to exit, all the while continuing to fire his weapon. Seven members of the emergency service unit returned fire, striking the perpetrator multiple times resulting in his demise. No injuries were sustained to members of the department. Three additional firearms were recovered from inside the location. Subject toxicology revealed the presence of cocaine. So there's a lot going on there. Yes. That incident report is basically the script to an action movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was warrant being issued, that fire lieutenant being shot, then a negotiation unit situation, and then ultimately a, a firefight before the death of the subject. Yeah. So in some of the news articles that I looked at regarding this incident, there were there was video and there were reports. It seemed as though this lasted over the course of a couple hours. It says it was around 11 in the morning, but it seemed as though they, I know that they flew the mother. They negotiated with him for six hours. 
And right. they flew the mother up from Delaware because he said he wouldn't come out if she wasn't here. So they flew her up on an NYPD chopper. Right. He had also been in touch with her earlier in the day when the marshals first knocked on the door. Okay. Because he didn't know why they were there, or at least told his mother he didn't know why they were there. And she said that she, you know, don't worry about it, just cooperate, we'll bond you out, and we'll, you know, resolve this, because your sisters and I need you here. And then, in their news report, anger was the, the word they used, not sadness, with respect to how she was feeling. Right. They, you know, she said they, they flew her up there to watch them kill her son. Right. So, the path that researching this incident led me down stems from watching a video with Garland, Tyree's mother, after this all happened, where reporters were asking her about her son and bringing up the fact that he was linked to gangs and she defended that in a way that I thought was respectful of him and also gave me some sort of insight into something that I really don't have any personal experience with where she said that since her son had been in prison, he basically had two choices. He could either feel unsafe and be messed with, or he could join a gang, which would give him protection. And I'm not sure if she used this word, but it gives him a community of people in that space. And so it led me down this path of trying to understand how people get involved in gangs in general and truly what is, is that just something that we refer to as a group of people that are, you know, doing some sort of criminal activity or is this really something that exists? and? Are there, I, you know, just in general, what is the history of gang activity and how can the positive aspects of being involved in a gang, such as community and protection, be part of our society, but the negative aspects such as weapons and drugs and violence be taken out of that? and what do people really need and you know what drives people to really join these groups yeah i mean protection's a hard one because i think that that feeds into all the violent aspects of it right i mean you could have people looking out for you in a neighborly way mm -hmm. or in a fraternal way or some sort but yeah i 
protection, it starts to be a, a thing where you're getting you're getting offered protection because you're involved in a violent situation. Like you wouldn't necessarily need protection otherwise. Although the concept of protection has a lot to do with just feeling safe and creating fear around different situations. We hear people all the time in our culture saying that they need to protect their home from some sort of invisible threat. And I'm not saying necessarily that, or I'm not saying at all that when you go to prison there's not an actual threat or that by any means that's some sort of unreal fear. But I'm kind of linking the idea of protection to the idea of feeling safe in an environment. Mm -hmm. And you could feel safe if there's a way to rid the environment of at least the majority of the violence, then you could potentially feel safe without needing that kind of violent protection. It could be just having a community is enough to make you feel comfortable and safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His first exposure to gangs, I believe it was listed at 16 when he was first involved with the justice system. Okay. And it was, as you suggested, provided as a means of protection or at least that was what was written down on the page. Who knows how much was influenced by the appeal of lifestyle and how much of it was being recruited out of fear for being screwed with in other ways, you know. But that was the start of it. And then at that point, he had run in after run in with the law. Right. And, you know, to, to have it culminate in this situation with an array of guns that, you know, it, are very difficult to acquire in New York City. You know, this is, I think there, it's safe to say there is a link to gang activity and acquiring those mm-hmm. it's easier to do so or at least would be a part of the culture to have those sorts of things right and then to you know have it go out the way it did with you know on social media saying today I die you know this seems like a suicide by cop situation perhaps certainly somebody that's not has the mental presence of mind you know doesn't doesn't want to go back to jail perhaps so thinks that suicide is the option or maybe was already suicidal and then saw this as an opportunity like it, it wasn't an instance of some of the true suicide by cops where right you create a situation in order to be shot this was a person that was in their home the fire aspect is a little confusing, but perhaps it was like an actual smoke screen 
you know, right. for when the for when they came into the building to cause confusion and and uh, make a situation where it could be escape, you know, or just honestly the culmination of a a life in this headspace of of violent crime and kind of glorifying violence and and having no other option but to play out this role. Yeah. Well, it you say that he got involved in the prison system when he was 16. So Garland Tyree was 38 when he was killed and I can only imagine, I know there's a lot of psychological research on different activities that can kind of stop your development or send you down a different direction. I can only imagine if you're only 16 years old and you're put in prison and get hooked up with gangs and then you're in and out for the next 22 years you're probably to some degree still thinking like that 16 year old and maybe not making the best forward thinking decisions or time of actions right well I mean you're not really being given any opportunity to make like decisions for yourself in any way like you're being kept in a state of adolescence but also like it's just a a metamorphosis of self-image from still growing person to criminal right and there's also not a lot of opportunity our system doesn't allow for a lot of opportunity because if you're put in jail when you're 16 that's before you're even legally an adult that's before you're allowed to even truly be a citizen in which you vote or get a job or participate in sort of the classic american way so you're already just on an outside path there's really no possibility for re-entry in our system no not really I mean you're basically you come out and then the opportunities that you are presented are these type of high-risk opportunities being involved in a gang having a sense of community within that gang he was high enough in the gang that he was collecting dues for the gang so that was that was the opportunity making I don't know how much money but I guess enough to to kick around right know, and maybe you know maybe making certainly making more than having two or three jobs you know working yeah. at a fast food establishment or something right like the the window of opportunity is closed so narrowly at that point to the point where it's like just having a job that 
ekes you by barely is a tremendous success story. But like, no one's going to celebrate that. Right, and that doesn't give you any real quality of life. It keeps you on the, in you know, I'm doing quotes right now, the like straight and narrow. Right. But is that really what people live for, just to follow the rules? I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, and also it would take some sort of tremendous role modelship to even get to that point. And people that are put in prison at a very young age and spend their final formative years there aren't just going to come out with that mindset. It's not like, why? Why would that happen? You come out and now you're like in your early 20s. It's, it's like this is your peak energy. It's not, you're not going to, you're just not going to spend that time thinking about how to do it the most conservative way, how to, how to take what is literally nothing and try to build yourself up from that. Right. It's or just, trying to impress your white collar manager at whatever job you do manage to get, who is probably treating you with some sort of disdain for being a young person that's come out of prison. It's, it's rare that you find an instance where people come out of prison and are respected by the rest of society. Right. So, I mean, in no way is it like a excuse for anybody's behavior to do anything like this. I don't... It, no. But you, if you just put somebody on the narrowest of paths and continue to push them along that direction, it's just not, it's, it's not surprising that this is the type of thing that's going to happen. And we can reduce the amount of times these things happen by improving the systems further up the line. Right. Yeah, I don't think... It's unfortunate a lot of people that, I mean, obviously all the people we're discussing in this segment have died. So this isn't going to help them in particular, but this is also not a judgment on these people. It's a, the goal is to find some sort of empathy, realize and recognize that these people that have been killed by the police are humans just like us and something failed them along the way. And whatever that is, we can hopefully as a society change it so that it fails less people. It's currently failing more people as we speak. Mm -hmm. So if we can figure out where that leak is, maybe we can try and patch it and, you know, help, help the people that are not there yet. Right. There's something that I found when I was going down the path of trying to understand the history of gangs in New York that I thought was interesting. I read a five-page report on the history of gangs in New York City that's on justicepolicy.org. So one thing that was mentioned in that report was an effort from the 1950s where uh, social workers were involved in being on the street with 
the gangs that were very active in the 50s in New York. And one thing that these social workers would do once they were involved and had the trust and understanding of the community was pinpoint the youth that were sort of getting into the most trouble and give them leadership opportunities in other areas, such as summer camp leaders and community centers and sports teams, things like that that are more positive but still community-based. And I guess what I take away from that is that these social workers were recognizing that clearly this, these kids were successful in a way, had a lot of energy to put into something. They were just putting it into what, you know, they, the social workers, considered to be the wrong direction. So instead of creating punitive punishment for these kids and sending them to prison for their actions, they gave them an opportunity to put that same energy into something positive. And it actually worked out really well mm-hmm. in these systems that, that they had in the 50s. So I could see something like that potentially, and I, and I would actually guess that there probably are programs like that in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm not super familiar with what they are or how they work. I'm interested to learn about it, but it wasn't, it's not really something that I've thought about a lot and it's not something that I think we talk about a lot in our culture. This idea of rewarding bad behavior is so frowned upon usually. But I don't really, I guess we can change the way we think about that. It's not necessarily rewarding bad behavior. It's recognizing that someone has energy and helping them to funnel it into a direction that will help them, society, their community, everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we need to get creative with the solutions and we need to get we need to start empowering people that maybe we haven't thought about empowering previously. Yeah. Because the system is not, that the trajectory the system is currently taking is just going to magnify the current errors. Right. There's nothing, there's nothing in, the, in the path that we're taking that suggests if we just do more of the same thing that the problem will be just eliminated completely. It's only going to get more acute. Right. It also just keeps it separate. So the other thing that was in this paper that I read was that a lot of these kids that got put into leadership positions ended up becoming leaders. They ended up becoming politicians or community leaders like as they got older. And, you know, politicians have a lot of decision-making ability in communities, so they had the experience of being in a gang as a kid, getting good opportunity to put their energy into good things, 
And then they were able to lead their community. So they actually had all of those experiences that you really want a leader to have. They really knew what people were going through. And yeah, I think that's important for, for there to be some sort of representation on all levels. So that's all for this week. If you have any more information on Garland Tyree's death, if you are interested in the case and would like to talk more about it with us, as always, we're happy to hear any responses from anyone. We also have one final note from our previous week's Use of Force episode, which Jesse's going to talk about. Yeah, so last week when we spoke about Rudolph Wyatt, afterwards I did a little bit more internet research and found a picture of a mural that was done by a graffiti artist called Tats Crew, who does lots of murals around New York City. And it was a memorial mural to Rudolph Booga Wyatt. And... Yeah, we didn't get a chance to see that in person when we were in Harlem, but we will, I found a picture from the internet, I put it on our Instagram, and we will pass by that mural again. I also found out that Rudolph Wyatt was also involved in gang activity, and that was part of what sent me down the path of trying to understand how people get sucked up into this and wanting to learn more about that. I have to, yeah. I have to. But I was also excited to see that that mural was made and it means that there's more than just us that are humanizing that person that was killed by the police. It means that there is a whole community of people that cared for him and still remember him and walk by that wall and think about him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, members of his gang, which is... Or community outside, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, people that are in gangs are also humans and have yes. empathy and emotions yes. and are capable of love and sadness, confusion and pain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all for this week. Take care for now. Bye. Bye.